you're listening to let it out with me i'm your host katie dalebout if this is your first time listening welcome i'm so glad you found the podcast go into the archives maybe you'll find more episodes that you like i've been doing this since 2013 it's the greatest thing i've ever done i'll get to more on that later but if you've been listening for a while welcome back thank you so much this episode is one of my favorites that i've done in a while maybe ever I love Camilla, who you'll hear all about in this episode. She is the owner of this restaurant here in New York City called Westbourne. She's also one of the most fascinating, educated, smartest, coolest. She's just a great person. I had such a nice time sitting with her in her cozy house surrounded by her family and her dogs, and it was a delight, and hopefully you can sense that and feel that in this conversation when you eavesdrop in a little bit. Couple announcements for you before we get into this episode. Number one, I am emceeing the next Good Fest, which is in Philly on August 11th, so I would love to see you there. If you can come, that would be great. And I have a discount code for you. So when you get your ticket, they're almost sold out, but use the code KATIEDALEBOUT15. That's my full name, KATIEDALEBOUT15 for $15 off your ticket. I hope to see you guys there. I was there last year. I had a blast. And this year I'm hosting it. I I can't believe it. I think it's going to be really great. Next big announcement that I have for you. I made something. I made a thing. This winter, I went into hibernation and worked for a really long time. I got to collaborate with some of my best friends on this project. And if you listened last week to my birthday episode, I talked about the process a little bit more. I didn't even mean to share it then, but it just kind of came out because it was kind of all I was thinking about for the past several weeks. But I, like you know, if you've been listening for a while and if you're new, this is new information to you. I started this podcast in 2013 when not a lot of people were making podcasts. It was pre-serial. It was pre-kind of this podcast boom, but I got so much from it. It was a way for me to network. I think podcasting is the new networking. I get to meet and have conversations with people all over the world at the time I was living in Michigan, and it made the world so much bigger and smaller at the same time it helped me connect with people and this art of conversation became somewhat meditative to me for that amount of time where I was talking to someone our phones were off and I was just doing that one thing and I got to meet not just the people I was interviewing but the people who were listening to the podcast and this medium has given me so much that I really want anyone who has an idea for a podcast or has the slight inkling that they maybe 
want to make one to be able to make one because when I was getting started, I had someone help me. There were a lot of things that overwhelmed me about podcasting like the technology or how to pay for everything or how to even someday make money with podcasting or at least be self-sustaining with the cost that it actually takes to make a podcast. All of it. And I figured it all out. I had a lot of help. I asked a lot of questions, but I figured it all out. So in the last several months, I collaborated with a friend of mine who's an audio engineer and I recorded a online workshop where I have eight modules, everything from your idea and how to get it onto iTunes and how to get music for your podcast to interviewing. That's the middle, which is the most robust module because I love that part so much to how to sponsor your podcast, how to monetize it and grow it and find an audience for it. So this is really for anyone who has an idea and wants to get started podcasting or already has a podcast and wants to grow it and improve it in any way. And I love it. I also, the best part of it isn't really me talking for the eight modules, although that's super well produced. My friend Clay did that and I love it. We had such a great time recording the modules. My friend Laura built us a beautiful website so you can go on there and take a course tour for free and check it out and see what it's all about see if it is something that you like or not and you get like the two first two modules and you'll just get to see kind of what it's all about and the website that my friend laura built which i love she made the logo it was just kind of this collaboration of love of all of my friends which brings me to the best part of this course which is that i interviewed over 12 i think other podcasters so that's that's so retrograde how to be less old almost 30 being boss uh, my friend jess lively and jess mernan and caroline duner from the fuck it diet so many other podcasters that i love a lot of them have been on the show but in these interviews they completely open up the kimono and tell you everything that they've learned about podcasting what they do what equipment they use how they do it how long they've been doing it what they recommend what they wish they would have known everything i also interview a dialect coach i interview an audio engineer and it's all there and i'm going to keep adding to it and it's really just meant to be this club the support group there's a listener or not a listener there's a participant i guess in this workshop there's a workshop facebook group so you people can connect with each other and then i'm doing some live hangouts where i can do what i do with my one-on-one podcast advising friends i will do with the group And the best part of this, or I think the best part of this, is that this ends with a contest. So I don't want people to do this course and purchase this workshop and maybe do a couple modules, maybe get excited for a while and then stop and then life gets busy and they don't end up doing their podcast. I want people to actually make podcasts because I love this medium and I want to bring more people to it. It helps everyone. So I've incentivized it a little bit by allowing people to make it a contest. So when you participate in the course, you'll have six months or maybe, yeah, six months to submit to me an episode of your podcast or a 30 second clip or a one minute clip or whatever it is that you want to submit. 
And then we will take all of those entries and I'm going to air the winner, one of them, on this podcast channel. So you'll actually get to hear from the winner of that contest. And I think it's a really great way to bring more listeners to that person's content and I think it's a great incentive to actually complete the course and make something that you're proud of. Having a deadline really helps me and I thought it might help you guys too. So no obligation. If you are not into making a podcast yourself and you are just someone who likes listening, cool. Totally get that. This is not for you. But if you know someone who might want to start a podcast or is considering it or thinks it might be helpful for their other pursuits to have a podcast with that, send this to them. This is how they get started. This is a great way to, you know, learn. And I, like I said, this medium has given me so much. I studied broadcast in college and podcasting didn't really exist then, but I'm so happy it does now. And making an independent podcast is something that I'm so happy that I did. And I'm just really grateful for this medium and this show. All right, that was kind of long. Thank you so much for listening through that. If you want to check it out, the link is in the show notes, or you can just go to launchpod.club, launchpod.club. My friend Carolina came up with a name, which I love. And yeah, that's really it. There's early bird pricing right now, so it's going to launch on June 4th. So the next two weeks, there's early bird pricing, and then the price is going to go up in that final week. So you've got some time. Think it over. Um, But again, try to decide by next week so you don't have to pay more. And for you guys, I almost forgot to mention the most important part. I'm doing a discount code. So since you listen to this podcast, since you are a friend of mine, there's a friends and family discount code that I'm going to give you right now. That gives you $100 off the program. So that's on top of the early bird price discount too. $100 off. That makes it, you know, pretty affordable for everything that comes with it. So the code for that, it's really simple. It's just let it out. Let it out. All one word. And that's it. All right. I'll talk to you guys at the end of the episode. Enjoy Camilla. And thank you for letting me talk about this thing that I've worked I don't want to say hard on because I actually had a lot of fun creating it and getting to collaborate with friends, but it was really time consuming. And honestly, it's something that has taken me five years to create because I've basically gathered all the information that I've learned in the last five years and put it in one place. So yeah, maybe you could Google all of it, but you know, I organized it in one place and not only, oh, I forgot to mention one more thing really quick. Not only are you getting all these audio modules and you're getting the interviews with the other podcasters, which is really where the value comes, but you're getting it, you're getting these templates for the emails that I send out to guests. You're getting the Excel trackers of how I track the guests and sponsorships and worksheets and anyway whatever it's just really great if it's for you cool if not no biggie thank you for letting me ramble about it a little bit and tell you what I've been working on and at least check out the website and the logo because I love it and my really best friend Laura made it and yeah I could I could talk about it all day but I won't because this is a long episode talk to you soon This week's episode is supported by something called Fit Fab 
fun. It's a seasonal subscription box with full-size beauty, fitness, fashion, and lifestyle products. It retails for $49.99, but has a value for over $200. I don't even know how they do that, but that's amazing. And if you use the coupon code Let It Out, that's Let It Out, you can get $10 off your first box, which you'll find at www.fitfabfun.com. I think it's a really interesting concept. It's really cool. This Fit Fab Fun box feels like Christmas four times a year when it comes in the mail. And the products include everything from makeup to candles, accessories, self-care products like a massage roller, travel products, beauty finds. It's really great and you can customize the products, add on what you want each season. It's different and it's a surprise. And the thing that I really love is the membership also includes access to FitFabFun TV, which has a variety of workouts and meditations that you can do anywhere. And I love that because I love to do workout videos at home. I think it's so much fun and I really like FitFabFun and I think you guys will too. Just check it out. Again, you can get $10 off your first box by using the code LETITOUT at checkout. That's let it out. And the items include everything from Tarte Makeup, which is a natural makeup line I like, Juice Beauty, which you know I also really love. There's so many great things in there. It's really fun and I think you guys will really like it. Thanks, FitFabFun. go back and talk about everything and, and how you got here from California and, and all of it. So let's, let's start there. I'm, um, I'm from the Midwest and that's defined my personality. I was telling everyone here and I know you're from California and that influences you in your work a lot. So can you talk about what you were like growing up? Did you have siblings? <laughs> were you close with your parents? Everything. Uh, we have the truth teller here. My, <laughs> my cousin who is, uh, more like a sister, so uh, she's gonna give me a look if I don't don't tell the truth. <laughs> do you guys get to see each other often? We do. We Facetime almost mm-hmm. weekly. Yeah. Did you guys grow up being close? Very. Yeah. Where you were like a commune style? Did you live close by growing mm-hmm. up? We did live close by. We did spend a lot of time together, matching outfits and all. Oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. I have two brothers. Um, so we didn't go to the same school. Okay. Um, I have two brothers, so, you know, and she has a brother who's about my age, so kind of the only girls in our age group yeah. uh, in our fa- very big bratty family. Um, <laughs> what was I like growing up? Very precocious, uh, very talkative, even from a very young age, very outspoken. Um, you know, I think I come from a very democratic family, you know, definitely a patriarch. My dad's the, the leader of the pack, but... You know, my parents always encouraged us to speak out and challenge authority and sort of wanted all of their kids to be forthright and active. And, you know, we were expected to sit at a dining room table and have, you know, discussions. There wasn't like a kid's room. It wasn't anything. We have no locks on any doors in my household and just kind of calm. I mean, we talked about the commune, very commune style. Um, As a kid... Very talkative, very creative. I've always been into drawing and painting. Always loved art since I was very young. Um, I'm very left brain, right brain. So I was always very advanced at math. I was like three grades ahead in math, but also my real passion was being in the art studio. So it was a little bit, 
Yeah, it's a little bit tough when you're growing up because I think they really want to categorize kids like, oh, yeah. they're on the math track or they're on the sports team or yeah. they're, you know, the artist that isn't good at school. And I think I always, and very much by the encouragement of my parents, I think always um, pushed back on any sort of convention or trying to be put into a box and always had pretty varied interests. Total tomboy. I wore my brother's clothes till probably the age of like 14. Even for my 10th birthday, I had hair down to my waist. And like my mom is very girly. So was my grandmother growing up. So was my cousin. <laughs> I was the opposite. All I wanted to do was be my older brother. And so my 10th birthday, I made my mom stand outside the hair salon and I cut it all off just like wow. a boy. Like before, you know, now pixie cuts are cool yeah. and like kind of in vogue. <laughs> It was not back then, and my mom was mortified and not very pleased. <laughs> so I think very daring. Um, very outgoing, very daring. Um, not afraid to sort of be myself. And I think I was lucky. I had two older brothers who loved me very much. I shared a room with my older brother, which definitely informed my personality. And, you know, not, um, you know, not being afraid to speak up and try new things and try different things. So... Very well-rounded, too. Very into school. Always been very good at, um, you know, on the academic front, but not a natural-born athlete, but worked really hard and was, like, an okay athlete. Like, got on the team, but definitely wasn't the starter. Never going to be the captain of any sports team. Um, and then, as I said, sort of on the artistic side. So pretty well-balanced. Did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up as a kid? <laughs> Actually, it was funny. Um, one of my best friends in the whole world, we've been friends since we were like 10 or 11, we played volleyball together and then eventually went to middle school and high school together. Um, she told me the other day, she goes, you know, I still have, we had this class where you had to trade college essays in like 10th or 11th grade, sort of preparing you to actually apply. And you had a peer read yours and you read theirs oh, and cool. sort of critiqued Smart. it and yeah. talked about it. And she goes, I still have yours and sometimes I read it and it makes me laugh. Uh-huh. I don't know that I knew what I wanted to be, but I think I always knew I would eventually work for myself mm-hmm. and start something on my mm-hmm. own. I don't know that I knew exactly what that was. For a long time, I wanted to be in fashion. My first couple jobs, really from the age of 17 to about like 2021, was actually all in fashion. Oh, wow. Well, I think, again, it's sort of that left brain, right brain. Yeah. I mean, it's creative, but also commercial mm-hmm. and is, mm-hmm. you know, a real business. Um but I don't know, I kept sort of trying different parts of the industry and it just never really clicked naturally. And then when I started getting into food, I was like, oh yeah, okay, this is it. Always loved food, always loved cooking. I cooked from a very young age. My cousin too is also a trained chef, went to oh, culinary wow. school. She has her own food business as well. Oh, wow. um, so yeah, I think uh, always knew I would be somewhat entrepreneurial. Uh, yeah. My dad's an entrepreneur. He always laughs. He's like, I think I made it look so fun that all of you guys want to do it. All my siblings are entrepreneurs. And I was like, yeah, you know, it's certainly hard and there's risk. But I think when you see someone enjoying it so much and how fulfilling it can be. um, I know I told him, I go, you shouldn't have made it look so, not easy, but I think very fulfilling. Uh, I think it, you know, just always called me. So my college essay was about running my own business and being at a bank, you know, in a meeting, trying to get a loan for sort of my first store. So, um, yeah, I think always something like that, but I never, I've never been a big planner. I never was like that. I still am not really like that. Every job that I've ever interviewed, um, for, you know, they always ask that question, what's your five-year plan? And I would always say, look, 
I can lie to you and I'm really good at making up stories or I can tell you the truth, which is look at my resume. I've always been open to opportunity and again, kind of, I think being very afraid to be in a box or sort of be predictable. (laughs) It's probably like a fear of being predictable. Yeah. Um, You know, I think that led me to always sort of being open to that next step, even if I couldn't see it or knew exactly where the road would lead. I think I just always went from sort of, okay, this is interesting. I can learn a lot. Okay, this is interesting. I can learn a lot and build it that way, which I think now looking back, it all makes sense. But in the moment, it was very hard along the way. I think people felt it was very hard to constantly prove what my path meant because it's very nonlinear. Yeah, it's like that Steve Jobs quote that I feel like always comes up in this podcast. You can't connect the dots moving forward, only going back. And sometimes you don't know what each step, how it's going to play out. But you just have to kind of like intuitively follow what's next. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and I think also if you're really so focused on a plan or what you think is going to happen and predicting things, you're missing out on things that you may not have ever anticipated. And I think yeah. the greatest things that have ever happened, both personally and professionally, are things that not in a million years could I have scripted that and, you know, who knows where it really leads. And I think you miss those detours. You miss those interesting turns if you're just sort of narrow in one lane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what brought you to the East Coast? Was it school that brought you here? So it's ironic. My mom always laughs. She really felt that having an East Coast education, ideally Ivy League, was, you know, our parents' generation going to college was really coveted and something very special. Both my parents went to UCLA, and I think for them to have children that went to an Ivy League school and really, you know, had friends from around the world and could really see things sort of outside of their bubble was really important. Um, I had one brother who stayed on the West Coast. My other brother also went to uh, UPenn, like I did, to Warden. And it's funny, I felt like we were pushed kind of <laughs> the nest in that way. We're very connected. I was like the kid that never slept out. like. I'm totally fine being picked up at like four or five in the morning, but like I like to be home, never went to sleepaway camp. Mm. Um, so I think my mom really pushed us out of the nest in that way. And she always says that she lives to regret it. Aww. She's like, I didn't think you'd stay over there. And I said, well, you did encourage it. So I came out to the East Coast first to Philadelphia for college. Um, you know, first year I think was really hard. It was a huge cultural change and shock. And like I said, I mean, I never went to summer camp or really spent time outside of spent time outside of Los Angeles and I played volleyball and we traveled a lot but not in the same way so I thank her because I think it was important to get that sense of independence um I loved Philadelphia I think it was the perfect transition to a place like New York stepping stone yeah yeah I mean you really can walk the whole city almost and it's very it's very neighborhoody and you know 50% of Penn comes from that area from in and around Pennsylvania and Philadelphia so you know, you do have um, a very big local culture and it's just, you're really part of the city yeah. and, you know, but it's a manageable city. You know, the yeah. restaurant, now the restaurant scene has kind of exploded. I started, like Michael Solomonov started really gaining traction. Steven Starr started expanding like right around that time. So when you were there going to school, were you into food while you were in school? So I've always loved food, always loved cooking. My mom's funny. She always tells me stories when I was younger. My mom's a great cook, but she doesn't like to cook. She never cooked when she was younger. When my parents got married, uh, she before they got married, she had hosted my dad for dinner, and he thought she made the meal. Lo and behold, she didn't. Who uh, made it? Her house. My mom's mom died when she was very young, and she had 
she's one of five siblings. You know, her dad was a doctor and, you know, obviously not at home a lot. So they had an amazing um, nanny, I guess, if you will, mm-hmm. a really sort of surrogate mom. And, you know, her role was, well, no one can be in the kitchen. Like, I can't keep yeah. this house straight if anyone's in five here. So people, yeah. no one was allowed to do anything because otherwise, like, the house would burn down. So when they got married, she was like, oh, you know, my dad said, so what's for dinner? She was, I don't know. <laughs> He's like, what happened to all those meals? So she's actually a great cook. Um, but it's not really, I think, her passion. And so I think I started taking on a lot of those responsibilities at home. And I really found it so therapeutic. Even now, it's sort of my Zen mode. You know, you can be creative, but there's a lot of science and math involved and, you know, a technical element. You have to balance time with what you're doing. And then also the creativity, obviously, of sort of what you're making, the flavors. And so in college, um, I already, I think at that point, realized probably early in college that I wanted to go to culinary school. I sort of had plotted that I do it after going to undergraduate business school, sort of crossed all the, you know, dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's, and then I could sort of do a year of indulgence and fun. Um, I lived in a house of seven girls, and I would cook at least twice a week. We had sort of family dinner. I still love to cook only for a lot of people. I'm not a, I hate cooking for just one or two. Um, So yeah, so I cooked a lot. We had a lot of friends who were into cooking and food, and would do sort of massive dinner parties. I ate out a ton. Um, you know, as I said, it was sort of weirdly the perfect time, I think, to be in Philadelphia. It was just starting to really mm-hmm. percolate um, for food and really being a destination city for restaurants and chefs. So it's mm-hmm. definitely a big part of it. And one of the reasons I chose to go abroad in Rome was oh, definitely okay. to be immersed in their culinary culture. Was that why, while you were studying business, you went abroad for business? Yeah, so thankfully my oldest brother told me that at Wharton, it's actually hard to go abroad because the credits required are very high and they don't give credits unless you're in a Wharton designated program, which they didn't offer in Rome. And I didn't want to go to Milan or a major city. I wanted to go somewhere a little different. And as I said, I came from an art background, so I wanted to study art history in Rome. So I basically doubled up on credits and took every AP test I could before going um, in order to have a semester off. So I basically got no credits for my semester abroad. Cool. What was that like? Was that really inspiring for you food wise? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think food and culture. I mean, it's so much the anchor of how people spend their time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think Italians for sure work to live and living comes first before anything and family is everything. And so much of the cool food scene there is very behind closed doors and casual and in someone's home or at a random cafe. And it was funny, a lot of the, my New York friends would get so upset because a place would have a little sign that's like, you know, see you later, no idea why they're closed or yeah. when they're coming back. And I'm like, oh my God, isn't that amazing? It's so, <laughs> so wonderful. And they're like, no, this sucks. Like, we wanted to eat here. I'm yeah. like, whatever, we'll find it another time. So I think experience, I think that opened my eyes to food as an experience too. There's a lot of interesting supper clubs and concepts that are... Um, you know, not your traditional sit-down restaurant all throughout Rome, mm-hmm. sort of sprinkled in. Um, and, of course, very similar to Los Angeles, I think everything revolves around fresh produce and the local markets and sort of what's available and in season. Yeah. You know, you don't refrigerate your eggs and you know your local butcher and whatever he says goes. And cool. so 100% and I cooked up a storm while I was there. It just, it was sort of like a 
international, obviously global, different view, but very similar to, I think, the ethos of sort of West Coast cooking and culture. So let's go back to your time in Philly. Were you coming to New York because it's so close to get here? Did you always know that you wanted to move to New York? Did you move here right after college? I didn't really spend... So my oldest brother lived in New York when I was in college. Um, So I'd say a little bit to see family or, you know, for long weekends here and there. But I really tried to be... I chose Penn very much for its campus culture and that it was a tight-knit community. Um, So really not until senior year was I spending a good amount of time there. Um, Just here and there, though. I wouldn't say extensively. I knew... I think I knew probably halfway through college that I would want to move to New York. I did a tour... So in my junior year, I took the LSAT... My mom really wanted me to go to law school, and so I said, well, take the LSAT and we'll see how it goes. I don't know. And so I took it, and I guess I blacked out, but she always tells me that I like, handed her my pencils, you know, kind of shoved them at her, and I said, all right, I'm going to culinary school. Like, this is it. I took the LSAT. We'll see how it goes, but I'm going to culinary school. So I came to New York, um, did a tour of the French Culinary Institute that summer, and just one bite of the baguette, and I was like, yes, I'm in. I need to know all of this. And... I think for me, like I said, I already knew it was sort of something I wanted to do as a bucket list thing. And I felt like the further life goes, the more responsibilities you have. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to sort of just do a gear that's purely indulging yourself in something you're interested in. Um, I don't know that I was, I don't know that I was aware of thinking at the time of it as a professional career. I mean, also, you know, now Penn has Penn Appetit, which is a food magazine and a lot of courses on hospitality business they have speakers from our industry like none of that existed when I told my guidance counselor in college from Wharton that I wanted to go to culinary school like you know she had had a meltdown just no one was going into the industry at that time so it's not like it is today where I think saying to someone out of college okay I want to be in hospitality at that time it was still in the early stages of I think being considered a profession in the way that it is now um but I knew I wanted to go to the French Culinary Institute um I kind of thought okay I'll see how that year goes maybe I'll apply to law school maybe I won't um kind of left it fluid I mean as I said I was like that's one decision I made so I knew I was going to come here um and go to culinary school I just always felt whether I used it professionally or not I thought so I have this great passion. I love to cook. What if I really knew the ins and outs? What if I really knew what I was doing? It would only make it that much more enjoyable to have a yeah. little bit of technique behind it. So, so. yeah, yeah. So you're you're <laughs> back in in New York. You go to culinary school. You're working, and you have this great community. Then how do, how does your career kind of go to the the next step? How does it come into what you were doing after that? Which I think is more on the the unseen side of the hospitality industry. Yeah. So I think for sure in another life, I would have been a chef. I absolutely loved culinary school with every bone in my body. I loved the intensity. I loved the craziness. I mean, again, I grew up in a house of boys. So just the, the fire and the pressure really was fun. Um, you know, and again, it's this brigade culture and really um, just 
wonderful. I mean, I've always said I felt like I was in a video game every day and it was just awesome. I mean, <laughs> obviously my lifestyle was totally crazy. I was basically non- nocturnal and, you know, going out till six in the morning after a shift. I mean, really it was like not a stable life at all. Um, so I really went from that to like the entire opposite end of the spectrum. As I said, um, you know, I look back in hindsight and I feel really grateful. My mom really, really insisted and begged that I go to law school and she felt very strongly you know especially women tend to take get taken advantage of massively in business whether it's personal or professional and you know she just said look I want you to be in a place where no one ever has to tell you what to do and you don't have to rely on someone Mm -hmm. to tell you sort of where the lines are and what you're entitled to there's just such a power of being able to really negotiate for yourself or at least understand what's being negotiated and you know, I said, okay, well, you know, if you pay for it, I'll go. Let's see. And so she said, okay, please, you know, it's just a couple of years. You're young. It's not a big deal. Do whatever you want after, but Was please this after, commit. after culinary school? Okay. Right after. So I applied for law school while I was in culinary school. Okay. You can imagine how strange of an application <laughs> that looked. Um, you know, so I went to law school really never intending to be a lawyer. It was kind of knew I was going just for the education, which ironically, I think allowed it to be such a positive experience and one without pressure you know it's all in a curve system and I think I ended up doing so much better because I didn't need it you know I wasn't trying to get that clerkship you know everyone said why don't you be on law review I'm like I don't want to be a lawyer who even cares you know I don't want to write articles no interest so you know it was interesting to see sort of it was kind of similar to culinary school where everyone was really on this very clear track not dissimilar to being at Wharton and everyone went into banking. I guess I've always been that yeah, like outlier. lone fish, yeah. <laughs> lone fish having fun in my corner. Yeah. Um, but it just allowed me, I think, to learn in such an open environment because I didn't have the pressure of what was that goal? What was it getting me? What was the next step? Um, so I went straight into law school at NYU and really loved it. I mean, law schools, I always say the practice of law is very different. You really do the same thing and again, you get sort of narrowed into a practice area. But law school is fascinating. I mean, I learned all about the sports legal system and the league system. And I learned about oh, contracts yeah. and I learned about civil procedure. And ironically, I did. I had one class on civil procedure where all it was was every day was a mock trial based on a different amend- constitutional amendment. Ironically, mine was the Second Amendment, which obviously now is being so hotly debated as it should you know in such an interesting way and that was part of I think what my mom was trying to get out as well is our world is just so legally involved and whether you think it's applicable or not every time you sign a lease you get married send a kid to school really good info to have you're a woman fighting for you know private rights I mean our world is so legally integrated and so really studying law was super fascinating. I mean, you really learn about our society from yeah. the inside out and from the history and why things are. And I mean, I just thought it was frankly really interesting um, from a cerebral and intellectual level. And then knew kind of early on that I needed to take on some sort of part-time work because I knew I didn't want to be an attorney. And so I sort of thought, okay, well, I need something to... Um, sort of stratify my experience you know if I apply to a job and I've only ever gone to law school but I don't want to be a lawyer it's me a little confusing and so I ended up um working part-time to develop what became River Park um 
and Appella, and there's a small concept called Little River alongside Tom Colicchio's restaurant group cool. on 29th and 1st, which, you know, at that time was really kind of a open desert, if you will. Um, and that was the first time I started really experiencing, you know, as you said, sort of the unseen side mm-hmm. of the industry, working on development, putting the pieces together. And that was the first time I felt more in the right place of again being able to be creative and think about the brand and we worked on the website and the marketing and the culinary and the menu and working on that side but also cutting the deal figuring out how the finances were going to work figuring out how the business was going to run and what would be required so i was able to really do both and that was the first time i thought oh you know this is a thing you know it's sort of one of those jobs you never hear about and business development means very different things in different industries and different companies um so I think that got my wheels turning. And in the meantime, um, you know, every time I was interviewing for jobs, they said, we don't really understand this law school thing. Like, we get it. You went to Wharton. You're clearly financially savvy. But like, what's this culinary school thing? Why did you go to law school? Like, we don't get you. No, 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 no. I mean, I was rejected by every person you could ever imagine. That's so interesting because you would feel like, I feel like if I was in their shoes, I would just be like, I want the most education in the in all of these diverse areas as possible. This person's well-rounded. You know, it's, well, I'll get to that. It's interesting. <laughs> I think we are a society of categorization in a really mm. large way. And I think people have a very hard time with non-traditional backgrounds. Um, and as much as we would like to or think well-rounded is better, right. we actually have a lot of societal pressures to specialize very early on, yeah. I think too early on. Um, so being a generalist actually, I think in my long-term career has served me well and has led me to the right place and certainly helps me with what I'm doing now. But it was a huge, huge hurdle every single year, you know, throughout my twenties. Um, and I agree. I think we should be celebrating more well-rounded backgrounds and people who are non, you know, non-traditional and think about things in a broader sense, but it's just not really how it works. So every place said, well, you know, now if you were in the JD MBA program, we would kind of get it. And I said, okay, but I graduated from Wharton like two years ago. Like, I don't really need to go to get an MBA. And they said, honestly, if you would be willing to do an extra year, I would have interviewed you or I would have given you Mm -hmm. the job. So I thought, okay. So I talked to NYU and it turned out a year before they had just switched because they wanted to encourage they're starting to want to encourage more JD MBAs, which is actually proliferating throughout the country, in fact, um, which is hopefully a step in the, a better direction. Um, so they started, uh, as an incentive, waiving the GMAT so you can apply with your LSAT. And at that time, I really didn't have time to take the GMAT, so I thought, okay, this is great. It's only an added year. I just have to fill out the application, and they basically take my law school application and staple it. Um, so I did that, tacked on an extra year um, and then decided around that time I had actually been interviewing with Union Square Hospitality Group Danny Myers restaurant group kind of around that same time we had approached them for what became the River Park project I negotiated a little bit with them um, and then decided it was best with Tom's group so I'd been talking to them and the more I started thinking about it I thought okay having really an investor landlord perspective first will allow me to go back into the restaurant game with much more experience, much more knowledge of the two sides of the coin. And I think I'll be a better asset if I do that first. And I also felt like not dissimilar to, you know, 
culinary school, the younger you are, the more it makes sense. I think, you know, the longer you go not being in investing, it's just hard to get in. Um, so I ended up accepting a job in Los Angeles at CIM Group. Um, they had so just that's what brought you back there. That's what brought me back to LA. Um, and you know, as I said, I had been talking to um, Danny Meyer and the restaurant group, and you know, I said, you know, I got this offer. I feel like I have to take it. And they said, you know, really? Are you sure? <laughs> like, you don't want to stay here and do this? And I said, you know, I think this will make me a better candidate down the road. I feel like I'm just not ready and. I think this is the right thing. And they said, kind of thought I was crazy. And all my friends were like, you're nuts. This is much more what you're meant to do. This is not the right detour. And, um, and I said, look, I totally believe in science and I'm very LA in that way. And I said, this is just telling you, I know in my heart, this is the way to go. Um, so went back to LA, uh, to get into real estate, private equity. And then eventually you come back to New York and you're doing something similar here with real estate and hospitality? No, so I, so when I took the job at CIM Group, one of the things that really interested me was they're very full circle. So when you're on the investment team, you negotiate the deal, you finance it, and then you run it. You soup to nuts, you sell it, everything. Everything's in your camp. So I loved that I could really get my hands in a lot. They did a mm-hmm. lot of ground up development and they did a lot in hotels and retail and restaurants. So the hospitality side of the business is what I ended up focusing mostly on. And at that time, they had just raised a lot of money to start investing in New York. And it was a pretty new, um, pretty new portfolio for them. So, and a lot of people didn't want to travel. They didn't, you know, they came to LA from other places intentionally to settle in LA. And so for me, it was great. All my friends were still here. I could travel on an expense account. I thought it was so, such a great opportunity and experience to really put so much capital to work in that way. Um, So I ended up focusing, as I said, a lot on hospitality, a lot on the East Coast, mostly New York, and ended up keeping in touch with the then president of USHG, who's since left, but at the time was number two under Danny. And we're having dinner one night when I was here on, on a deal and I said oh you know like whatever happened to that director your business development role you were thinking about and he said oh you know we never hired anyone and I was like wait a year and a half two years later you know this role is still open that's crazy and so I thought oh another sign (laughs) so I said uh would you let me interview again and he said wait are you moving back here I said well for this I would so sort of secretively started interviewing ended up getting the job and again, sort of looking for a sign. I sat my parents down and I said, you know, I think I might have to move back to New York for this. And they both like totally thinking they were going to go, no, please. Thought my mom was going to cry. And both my parents without even blinking just said a hundred percent, like this is the time to be building your career. This seems like it's all really unfolded in the way it's meant to be. Like, yes, we're so pumped. And so I thought, all right, let's do it. So that's what brought me back to New York was to work for Union Square Hospitality Group. So tell me a little bit about, because I thought it was so fascinating on the podcast I listened to of you with Dana (laughs) about, like I said, the side of the business that is so crucial and fascinating real estate development, but people don't really know about. I learned so much from that. And so what exactly, can you talk a little bit about what you did? And you mentioned in that podcast about location, location, location actually is really true. And when it comes to developing these restaurants and hospitality things 
what were you doing there? What was that, that time like? Yeah, well, my role at Union Square Hospitality Group was much broader than real estate. Some of it was real estate, but it was sort of bigger than that. Partnerships and seeding a little bit of what became the strategic investments. Um, but on the real estate side, you know, they really never had had someone at the company before who had real real estate investing experience. So to be able to really understand, as I said, you know, what's a landlord looking for? What are their needs? What are their limitations? And what do we need? And how can we find, you know, what that concentric circle is? And also having a sense for what's a market deal. I mean, so much of what I did at CIM Group was neighborhood analysis, competitive analysis understanding what incentives are given across multiple leases in a certain neighborhood within a certain time frame. You know, the goal is to have a market lease, if not an under market lease, a better lease. Um, you know, and it was so interesting to be able to provide kind of that institutional knowledge and a structure and a process for looking at these deals, for analyzing these deals and really negotiating them. Again, it was very um, you know, before I got there, the company was very ad hoc in how they chose new projects and how they thought about things. And it was interesting is when I started, I really had no idea. When I got there, I thought, oh my God, I kind of came onto like a startup within this massive 30 year old company that has 3000 employees, but it was really myself and Richard Corrine, my boss, really almost at a scratch startup. Like there were no files, no one saved anything. Wow. There was no no real structure or system for how to go about these things. Um, so it was really entrepreneurial. Totally. And very unexpectedly yeah. so, which was, you know, pretty amazing. So to be able to share that kind of knowledge of, okay, so we're opening, you know, I helped relocate Union Square Cafe and helped work on that real estate lease um, right before leaving. And, you know, to be able to show metrics of, okay, even down to menu pricing, this is what menu prices look like in a, you know, eight block mm. radius and a mile radius. You know, as much as we look at relative leases, that's how a restaurant also needs to look at every other element. Like if you're pricing two X, what everyone else in the neighborhood is, that's fine, but you at least should know and have yeah. a reason behind it and be able to, you know, teach and communicate to your guest why you are two X, but just to sort of put your head in the sand and say, we're doing us. And that yeah. just is it. It's not really what this game is about. And everything's relative and local. That's exactly how real estate runs too. So, you know, what I shared on the podcast with Dana was location, location, location means only that everything needs to flow from the strategy. Whatever your strategy is, whatever your concept is, everything needs to fit it. So, you know, right now with Westbourne, we're an all day concept. We're open 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. and all the way through. So for us, a neighborhood has to have people who work there, people who live there, actual locals that are around and about, and ideally some tourist traffic, you know, to really be yeah. full and activated full day versus if you're a dinner only restaurant, great, that's fine, but you should make sure that there's evening traffic. So for example, Dumbo, super busy during the day and weekends, less busy at night. Williamsburg has the opposite, very mm -hmm. busy at night, much less activated during the day. Part of that too is, okay, do you want a hotel deal? Is being part of a hotel that has people there 24 seven, you know, does that fit your concept? Maybe, maybe not. Is your concept meant to have a small space? Is it meant to have a large space? You know, all those things should be funneled through your concept and your strategy and the location needs to be, every single box needs to be checked as far 
as far as it's supporting what the needs of that business are. Yeah. I am so eager to get to Westbourne and talk about the power <laughs> of the neighborhood and talk about your newest creation, your, like you mentioned, the beautiful restaurant you created, named after the street you grew up in California. And first of all, congratulations. Um, it It's basically like my, my dream come true restaurant. Can you talk about what the the process like was opening it, what some of your inspirations were, and and how it's going now. How many months in? Not that many. So we're nine weeks, just past two months. Yeah, yeah. So still a baby. What's what's <laughs> happening? How, how how have those two months been? What was it like leading up to that? Tell tell me everything. So leading up to it, um, the irony of all ironies is that the real estate was the hardest part to put in place. Um, you know, we had a couple a couple factors that were very interesting to deal with. Um, and it led to about three to four failed real estate deals before we found our current location. Um, whether it was the deal fell through or I walked away, I walked away from two leases basically at signature after being approved by the community board, um, for beer and wine. Um, the, the trouble I was finding was, you know, vis-a-vis a landlord, which I understand I'm a startup. It doesn't exist. I can't say, oh, there's this concept that I started uptown or in LA or in a different city and I want to bring it here. It's, you know, I really had a very simple deck. I had myself, my story, my bio, but, you know, vis-a-vis a landlord, I'm a risk. It's an unproven concept. It's something that's scratch and brand new that they can't really wrap their heads around. And they don't know you and all of your experience from... Exactly. So... You know, the challenge being it's a risk for them, but at the same time, I'm not a startup. I'm not an unsophisticated tenant. I'm someone who knows a lot about real estate. So I kept finding a lot of landlords were really trying to push me into a very non-market, non-competitive, very onerous lease that had a lot of stipulations that were just not acceptable or fair. And, you know, the answer to them is, well, I have 10 people who would sign this. And I said, you know, the sad part is you're right. And that saddens me for our industry, that there are so many people that don't have the right resources, that don't have the right background, and aren't able to know that those aren't terms that you should be signing from a restaurant business standpoint. So it was sort of a a power struggle in that way of knowing too much and not being an unsophisticated um, restaurant business, but also not having a proven track record and not having a lot of leverage without that. So... Took a long time, um, but we signed this lease last April, so we had a pretty short development time from yeah. lease to opening. Um, we were waiting for Con Ed for over two months uh, for both power and gas, which is what led us to a January 10th opening. We were supposed to open in November. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, as my dad says, if it was easy, everyone would do it. Yep. Uh, if New York was warm, we'd have you know a billion people living yeah. here. So, you know, we have to take it with a grain of salt. Um, so yeah, so the, the road to opening, I think, I think it just, I think the hurdles and sort of the, the bumps in the road just helped me refine what I was thinking and also helped, helped kind of prove to me that I was really interested in doing this Mm -hmm. and it was worth fighting for and it was worth working for. And I think, you know, whenever you encounter adversity, I think it just helps you clarify whether it's something you're really willing to stick to. I mean, in any endeavor. I mean, a book is no joke to write. And, you know, I think sometimes it takes that being challenged to help 
solidify um, both your vision but also your commitment to it. Yeah. So it's going really well so far. We're very, very happy, very pleased, and feeling very fortunate to be, you know, so in. I feel as though we're very ingrained in our community there, and I think we're very fortunate that that's the case. Yeah, I I read that you said, and I wrote this down, maybe in the Vogue article, but you said, it's inspired by wellness and the balance that you grew up with on the West Coast and celebrating the bounty of California agriculture and makers. What do you miss most from the West Coast, and how do you bring that into the space? I mean, a few things. One of the first is, you know, we have all communal seating, so everyone sits with strangers and bumps into one another. And, you know, it's not like the farm table the way a lot of restaurants have all of our seatings open and communal. Um, And it's so funny. It's such a thing on the West Coast to do that. And I think, you know, there's a sense of fun and, again, opportunity and chance when you sort of run into someone you make a new friend Mm -hmm. it's funny to see a little bit of new yorkers sort of they give me this look of terror when i ask them to sit with someone random and then afterwards they're like oh i made a new friend like we're going running tomorrow and you're like see just you know embrace a little bit of the unexpected uh i mean i think we're lucky i think you can yes west coast produce and agriculture still reign supreme but we are fortunate i think to get a lot of really great local and organic goods and You know, I think our goal is to highlight that every season has beauty and, you know, our bounty plate, for example, you know, we open in the dead of winter and we're using all in season ingredients and to show that that can be colorful and exciting and delicious um, and inspiring, even though it's January in New York. Um, is sort of what we're going for. Yeah, everything, the aesthetic of Westmore from the logo and the design to the Instagram feed to the <laughs> bounty plate to the the plates and the way that it actually looks and the design of this actual space is is so beautiful. Can you talk about your aesthetic? You have such a clear aesthetic. You're like one of my favorite people to follow on Instagram just <laughs> personally. You. So can you, <laughs> I don't, it's kind of a hard thing to put to words, but you have yeah. this fine art background. Can you talk about the aesthetic and your aesthetic? Yeah. So I knew, it's funny, actually the name probably before the real full concept came to be, um, you know, I had market tested and a lot of people and sort of asked them and everyone had the same sort of reaction. They went, Ah, it's so you know, perfect. and I thought, oh, that's great. That's exactly the feeling. Yeah. Uh, so I had the name. I was pretty clear on the concept. I knew I wanted to work with Studio My out of LA. Um, I have been a big fan of their work for a long time. They did the original Jelena, Hinoki and the Bird. They did the South Congress Hotel in Austin, and mm-hmm. just have been following them. They're very comfortable meets industrial, and a lot of just feels very hand done, but in a very elegant way. Um, you know, not craftsy, but you can very clearly see that a human being made it. Yeah. Um, so I actually cold emailed them, ironically, two and a half years ago. So it was right when I was starting, and that was one of I my first phone call was to the Robin Hood Foundation to work on our charitable model, and the second call um, was a cold sorry not a call it was a cold email to their info line it was like info at studiomyla.com and. They wrote back and they said, you know, we're very selective on projects. We're a very small shop. I don't know. I don't know. I said, look, when you're in New York, let me buy you a coffee. Worst comes to worst. It's a free drink. Can never talk to me again, but just hear me out. Um, and feel very fortunate that they signed on right away. And 
you know, I think their aesthetic and their perspective on design is very aligned with mine. So what we're going for is that very nostalgic but cool 1960s Los Angeles. Again, like I said, before LA, you know, Silver Lake was not a neighborhood people talked about. West Adams, I'm like, where did that come from? You know, there are all these neighborhoods that have cropped up in Los Angeles that just didn't exist at the time. And so it's sort of a little bit of nostalgia of um, a heritage of LA that's very local, um, very family oriented, very home oriented. Um, you know, I think our design is meant to play with your mind as to what's home, what's commercial, you know, it's all open. We knew we wanted it to be, you know, anyone can kind of roam around. You feel like you're in a friend's home. Mm. Um, it's like my dream home, uh, way, way better designed. Um, and blurring those lines of what does it mean to be in a restaurant? What does it mean to be casual? What does it mean to be communal? Um, and I think the aesthetic is that purity of West Coast, the pioneer, in each of us that freedom to be a little bit messy, a little bit rough, a little bit unexpected. So there's a big mix of industrial elements, um, you know, metals and the biggest thing, I mean, the first thing when we sat down, I was like, I don't want to see millennial pink. I don't <laughs> yeah. want to see the mint green that's everywhere. I don't want to see terrazzo. I don't want to see copper. Like <laughs> I'm over all this stuff. That's yeah. just such a big pervasive trend. And that was our big thing too is, very much aligned on timeless and I think harking back to an era that's just much purer and not so transient um, and not of the moment helped us anchor towards something that would be, you know, as fresh today as it will be hopefully in five years. Yeah. So it has a very, um, it's and quirky. I mean, it's quirky the way LA is quirky. So there's a lot of sort of notches and imperfections and, blended um you know braided fabric against you know a steel lamp um and the other big thing i said was you know i know i might appear girly but i'm really a tomboy at heart and i don't want something where you walk in and think oh this is like feminine yeah. or it's trendy or it's flashy i want it to feel very neutral very welcoming very serene but interesting yeah you well well done it's like that's exactly it that's amazing and the brick was honestly it was funny so the space obviously has the historic brick it actually had been covered up for 70 years oh, by wow. jean-claude which was there for many decades a french restaurant that was very beloved on sullivan and when we were doing demo we realized we pulled back you know you always like investigate sort of see where things are and mm -hmm. we get a little bit of brick peeking out and i said okay let's peel it back and just see what we've got peeled it back and both brick walls on both sides were pristine, which is wow. very hard to find. So it was actually funny because there was a big debate between myself and Studio Mai as to whether we would keep it. And I said, oh my God, like, yes, there's no brick in, you know, there's not really brick in LA. It's not an LA thing, but this is so historic and so spectacularly maintained. We can't recover it. Like, I felt like, you know, the protesters, the yeah. protesters chaining themselves. I said, you cannot touch it. So we sort of compromise. So the tile overlays so that it's a little bit of a compromise of LA and New York. So that's sort of, I guess, our, our New York nod. Oh, I love that. Oh, well, one of my other favorite parts, in addition to the brick and everything you shared, is that you give a percentage of every purchase to The Door, a nonprofit providing youth development services 
and it's located right down the block. Can you talk about why that was the very first email that you sent and <laughs> how you knew that you wanted to, that to be the charity and that you wanted there to be that element? Yeah, so, you know, I think the first thing that popped into my mind was the name, and the second was the concept really originated in blending the two things I care about most. One is hospitality, and the second is community. And I'm very lucky I was raised by two parents who are so civically active, so generous and involved in their own backyard. And something I think my mom stressed to us a lot too is, look, all giving is great, but we have neighbors and people in our own cities that need help. And why are we making a living in this city and shipping things out when we have help here and we have neighbors that need us? How can we not be prioritizing them first? Um, so it got me thinking a lot, especially being a Union Square Hospitality Group where, you know, all the restaurants are generous. Danny obviously is a big position with Share Our Strength, but there wasn't sort of a large strategic platform. And you look at how my generation, I think, has changed the game when it comes to philanthropy. I don't think we want to put our names on buildings anymore. I don't think it's about big splashy galas. I think it's about aligning with brands, wearing brands, purchasing things, and voting with your dollars in a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis, not these like once in every five years, yeah. big, massive donation. You look at the rise of Warby Parker and Tom's and Feed, yeah. and I think it's, you know, even Everlane with its transparency, I think we're just craving improving our society, but in a more incremental day-to-day way and through our routine, what we wear, what we consume, where we live. Um, And yet there's such an interesting disconnect. No one is that full circle place for hospitality and really planting that seed of we are helping our neighbors in our community full circle, um, thinking about how much time and energy and money you spend on where you eat and drink. You make more decisions in your everyday life on that than anything else. And what if just a byproduct? It's a cool place. It's a place you want to eat. It's a place you want to get together. Just like Warby Parker has awesome glasses, whether you care about their mission or you don't. What if that really made an impact and made an impact on a neighbor that lived in your community? What if that was the new model of how we ate and what we supported when it comes to dining out? Yeah, and I also love that I read in that same article, half of your staff has never worked in a restaurant, but that doesn't worry you because it's an investment. And can you speak about that a bit and how you look at hospitality? I thought this was so great as one of the last frontiers where you need passion over a degree. Yeah, I mean, you really look at how our society, again, if you think about how philanthropy is changing, you know, our job market's changing ever at a crazy clip every single year. And more and more industries are being automated, robotics, AI, I mean, even virtual reality. I mean, our world is getting very digitized. And with that comes less human jobs, but also human jobs that require much more advanced knowledge and degrees and experience. That gap is widening and there's just not a lot of industries that really can foster a career that leads to the middle class. It's just not that many. I mean, retail, restaurants, you know, there's very, very few left and and few left that won't change. You know, even construction in a lot of ways, some is being automated. 
I don't believe that hospitality will ever be automated. I don't think that we're going to be dining out with robots. I think we will still want that human connection. Yeah. (laughs) I think those airport iPads. I think it will remain a human need to still want to socialize and want to be out with people. And, you know, you can start at a restaurant with no experience, stay on, work hard, you know, have a passion for really taking care of people. And really have upward mobility into management, making six figures and a real life for yourself, no matter what city, no matter what level of a restaurant. There's so much upward mobility and there's so much open space for anyone who's just willing to work hard and commit to learning. And there's no barrier to entry. There just aren't those dynamics in many industries left. And I think to really take that seriously can make a very big impact on our society. Yeah, I loved that. And you didn't mention this, but I wrote down all of these things from that article that I love that you have health insurance for every employee. There's a pre-service staff meditation, which I love you mentioned before that you tried to go to a workout class, but you're six minutes late, but there's workout classes. And then that you do what kind of you did for yourself with your own education with having people be more generalist cross training. So every employee knows every position that needs to be done in the restaurant. So it's like you were saying, more communal. Can you talk about how that's going and what that's yeah. what that's been like? So that's another element. <laughs> I've been told I was crazy probably through this whole process. Everyone told me I was crazy to get into restaurants. I was crazy to have it be about LA. I was crazy to work with Studio Mine, our designer, our visual designer photo studio out of Austin. Like, why wouldn't you use people in New York? Why are you using these people in other cities? And why are you doing it this way? Um, How do you take that feedback? Like, do you mentally just like put up a shield or do you just like, do you let it affect you? Because I don't know, I can be so malleable with, I know what I want and then I just let people mold me. I just think I've always swum against the current in that way. And I think, again, I think if everyone's chasing the same thing, then no one wins. I think Mm -hmm. the real creators and the real people that I've you know, admire that I've paved a new road are the ones that went to a new road rather than taking the one that everyone else is on. So, you know, I think anything that's different and, you know, hopefully at some point innovative, it has to be something that no one else can see or it by definition is not innovative. So I don't know. I mean, I've always had a good gut for things. I always have trusted it and it's led me, you know, down great roads so far so you know call it I don't know call it what you will I just I take it and I hear it and I understand I try and put it into perspective of where someone else is coming from what their interest or experience is you know and then I have to filter it for myself there's no point of me that ever hesitated you know working with a design firm in LA and you know the day I spoke to the owner of that and the owner of Foda, it was almost like love at first conversation. And we just spoke the same language and saw things the same, the references to Los Angeles in that era and, you know, kind of nostalgic, a little bit surfer culture and that open, that open possibility of the West coast just spoke to all of us so instantly that I don't know, someone who says, why would you do that to me? It's sort of like, well, we date on the internet and we get in strangers' cars now, you know, I don't know, five years ago, I thought none of that would be possible. So who really cares? Um, So a lot of, you know, a lot of friends in the industry had sort of said to me, this will never work. You know, 
you can't just train people in different positions and you can't just have one team. That's not how our business works. And I said, I know, I don't like how the business works. I don't like that there are porters that are the underbelly of this industry, that people don't consider part of their teams that stay in that position for their whole careers. I mean, it's a caste system. And that's not what this industry should stand for. It should stand for progression and really, as I said earlier, provide a real career path to the middle class, if not above that. Um, I, I really believe against that. So we have no dishwashers. We have no porters. Every person is a team member. They are paid the exact same no matter what your position on shift is. We do offer full um, health insurance, a lot of other perks. Um, including Embrace Your Side Hustle, which is a reimbursement for anything cultural, wellness, um, or intellectually related. So anything from an art museum ticket to a meal out to, you know, even a movie ticket. I mean, that's cultural. So, you know, just trying to get our team. reimburse them for that? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's so, so cool. You know, and I think creating a generalist program, and one of the reasons we is one of the reasons we can hire people without experience. So, you know, you really start from just talking, greeting guests and, you know, sort of running tables and thinking about that experience. Any person who is a warm soul can do that. You know, it's not rocket science. They can take care of someone if they have the heart to do it. You know, the technique of serving of, you know, how you greet someone and how you clear a table and how you organize things very easy to teach mm-hmm. and it's very basic so we have such a natural entry entry point into different positions and then we rotate so everyone is cross-trained and one of the reasons for coming up with that was again wanting our team members to be well-rounded to understand the restaurant from a 360 angle to understand you know, it's a business, it's a family, it's an experience, it's all of those things. And if you're only doing this one job every single day, you know, you're peeling potatoes and that's all you do every single day in a restaurant, or you're the person that washes dishes every day, you have no sense of sort of what makes this industry um, intricate and what makes it possible and what makes Westbourne special. Um, And out of that, I think, comes a few things. I think one, you know, the disparity between cooks in front of house is egregious. I am taking a very strong stance against that. As I said, the difference between an employee and, you know, a quote unquote regular employee and a porter dishwasher is egregious. We're taking that out. And I think part of it is also business flexibility. Like we can have one person who is able to do different positions. So, you know, someone's sick or there's an emergency mm-hmm. You know, we have much more business flexibility. And in addition, what's most important is I don't think we as humans are programmed to do the same thing every day. Yeah. I think we need variety. I think the element of learning and curiosity is innate to all of us. And yeah. I think fostering that is really important. And showing someone, you know, half of our team that does coffee and wine have never worked with an espresso machine. And we don't have an automated one. I don't believe in that. I want them to learn how to actually make proper coffee. And, you know, thanks to our partners at Counterculture, who have unbelievable training support, we've been able to do that. Um, Every person is wine trained. Every person is expected. You know, you cannot get hired unless you know about the menu and know about our partners. You, no one is hired who doesn't know about our story, our brand. Um, You know, you can't, all of our entire team are brand ambassadors. And I always say to them, part of that is also forcing it 
through our open floor plan. You know, someone's on their way to the bathroom, they're gonna catch yeah. you, you know, while you're cooking something and they're gonna ask you a question. Every person should be able to answer the same exact questions. It's so cool. It's so innovative and and also at the same time, like just makes sense intuitively. And yeah, I love it. I but it, ironically, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't exist anywhere. Yeah. Have you ever had? Have you ever seen that model anywhere else? I no. It's so cool. No, but you know, it takes extra work. It takes a leap of faith. It takes a big leap of faith to hire someone who's never worked in a restaurant and really think that they're going to be committed. And what we found is really the opposite of what the naysayer said. You know, there's such an excitement for our team members who are learning about the business and learning about the industry and learning about what we do and, you know, cooking food for the first time. And just the pride and the excitement is, you know, incredible. Um, and I think there's a lot of mutual respect on our team. You know, there's never... We always say, you know, we don't throw anyone under the bus. Like, you don't go to a table and go, oh, well, chef won't do that. Or the cook refused or the cook messed up. You know, we're all one team. We're all responsible for it. And I think to be able to understand what each person on the team really does creates much more of a sense of, um, you know, internal community and mutual respect. To really be able to know that every person's role is incredibly critical to making it all work. There's no judgment of, oh, you don't work hard. Oh, you serve, you know, you don't know what it's like to be in the kitchen. Well, we all know what it's like to be in the kitchen. I mean, every person preps, every person cleans dishes, every person greets guests, every person folds napkins, you know, we're all sort of in it together. And I think it creates a really different dynamic. So is there like a rotation system or does it vary every day? What if someone, let's say, loves talking to people and doesn't really love another element of it, do they have the opportunity to say, hey, I want to stay linger here, or is that not really an option? You know, we do. We do encounter preferences. Um, We try and be flexible, but at the end of the day, that is our program, and that is what makes us unique. And I think once you start having one person who says, I don't want to rotate, the whole thing kind of comes crashing down. So I think for us... You know, we're very clear in interviews. We haven't had anyone come on board who hasn't wanted to rotate. Yeah. You know, you might be more comfortable or feel better in a certain position. We all have our skills and comfort zones. Yeah, in any job. But I think everyone to date has been game for even saying, hey, you know, I'm really great at talking to guests. I don't really know how to cook. I'm willing to do prep, you know, but I'm new. Is that going to be okay? You know, I'm not that fast or I'm not that great at that. Is that going to be okay? So, you know, I think if someone really didn't want to rotate, we just wouldn't really be the right place for them. So, you know, sort of like I say with any brand or any business, you can't be all things to all people. Mm -hmm. That's just not a strategy. I think you have to have a little bit of friction and you have to be a little polarizing to stand for something. So personally, I think we're okay taking that stance and, being that magnet for people who do want to be generalists, who do want to be well-rounded and do want a broad background. Yeah. Better to take that stance um, and be proud of it. Yeah. I want to touch on, talk about food more and and touch on the menu. Can you, I I love that it's accidentally vegetarian, which is how I normally am. And I just love that so much. (laughs) Can you talk about how you develop the menu? Are you... Did, did you develop it as, as a chef? And do you have a favorite dish? How often are you there? Tell us everything. So the menu 
the concept started with, you know, I look out into the market and I think all of the casual vegetarian restaurants are either very preachy or very processed and neither of which is really how I was raised eating. And I think that when you look at, you know, think of your five favorite restaurants, a lot of times the restaurants that I love, the best dishes just happen to be vegetarian. Mm -hmm. And when you look back and you're like, oh, I loved that eggplant or I loved that pasta or I loved that salad, you know, you didn't go there to have a vegetarian meal, but a lot of times the most creativity, the most interest comes from that vegetarian dish. And what if a restaurant pulled all of those dishes together um, in a different way without being preachy. You know, we don't put V or GF for gluten-free and we really don't promote impress that we're vegetarian either. I think that we just want to be a place that's delicious and exciting and stands for something important for our social mission um, rather than sort of caring again about a category. Um, so menu development, um, started for a while with myself and then we brought on a culinary director who's also from los angeles her name's amy Yi. she came from john george in upland super super talented um and it really grew into a very organic um very mutual collaboration so you know it was so great to we met through a mutual friend very serendipitously and it was sort of love at first sight um you know i I had the concept and I had so much of the vision and direction, but I knew that I wanted a culinary director to really take us to the next level. And, you know, again, my highest and best use while I dream of being a chef in another life definitely wasn't um, just being in the kitchen every day. And I knew we had, which we do, have very sort of big goals of where we want to take this at some point. You know, step one is first step, but... um, so yeah, so when I met her, it really clicked almost instantly. We're about the same age. She's also born and raised in Los Angeles, very rare native. And so much of our food references and our interest and in the food that we were raised with was very, very similar. So really took off from there pretty quickly. Um, favorite dish? Ooh, it kind of rotates. I mean, obviously all of them are dishes that I love. Nothing would go on the menu that I didn't think was spectacular. Um, the sleeper hit for me right now is our over the rainbow. I, um, I'm really not a macro bowl eater. It's not my thing. And I think a lot of times the connotation is almost too clean, a little bland, a little boring. Mm -hmm. And I think ours is so packed with flavor and spices and such interesting vegetables and our jalapeno tahinis, like out of this world, I would put it on cardboard and eat it. It's so good. Um, it's just very balanced and I think represents what we do, which is flipping expectations a little bit on its head and packing a punch in a really unexpected way. Um, that and I mean, the mushroom into is definitely one of our more popular dishes. I think just really satisfying, really indulgent, really decadent, but with super high quality mushrooms. We source from Primordia Farms in Pennsylvania and they're just these beautiful, beautiful maitake mushrooms that like I could probably eat those plain. Um, but it's just a really, really satisfying uh, sandwich. So what? how often are you there and do you feel like you 
comparatively to how your life was structured before, which was more on the other side of restaurants, the unseen side, how, what, what's a typical day for you like now? <laughs> there are no typical days. Mm-hmm. Never were, never are. Uh, so my split is pretty even. I mean, I'm in the restaurant. Certainly in the first month, it was every single day, every minute. After like three weeks, I finally sat everyone down and I just said, look, this is not sustainable and everyone needs to sleep. We are not going... I would say you can't do your best unless you're your best self. So balance and taking time for oneself is very important to me. I do not want anyone to burn out and I want us to still have a little bit of a life. Um, So I try and take two days a week that I am not there at all. Um, Part of that is also, I think, you know, it's hard when it's yours to take the hands off the wheel. But I think if you don't, you know, you have to show trust to get trust. And if you're constantly there, I always say it's sort of like, you know, swacking the basketball out of someone's hand. It's like, just let them run with it, you know, and everyone's going to make mistakes and not everything's going to be perfect. But if our team members and our management team aren't learning and doing things on their own, and I'm always there to either ask questions to or fix or whatever, and not that I have any, you know, I don't have all those answers anyway, um, you know, then we're not growing and each of us won't be able to grow if, you know, there's sort of that safety blanket always there. So I try and really balance it out and not be there 24 seven for that reason, not because I don't love it. Um, And it's hard because I definitely created a place I want to hang out all the time. So sometimes I have to remind myself that I can't be there all the time. Um, But it's split, you know, I think as much of my time is on developing our team you know, thinking about our strategy, running the business, um, but also thinking outside the box. I'm always the person that will pretty much take any meeting. I think that, you know, again, can't know what's around the corner unless you sort of have your eyes and head up. Um, So yeah, it's different between meeting with different partners and, you know, helping direct our social media and thinking about our menu and events so we just did a pop-up with june's all day in austin for south by southwest you know i have to make sure that i i focus very hard on taking the space to be able to sort of brainstorm those creative and fun and out of the box and bigger sort of um activations as well as sort of you know what our strategy and growth plans are yeah i feel like we kind of took a leap when we were talking about your experience and you were you know working with this other company as their director and then all of a sudden you had Westmore and I know that you're also an angel investor which you spoke about in Dana's podcast and I found that fascinating could you talk about how you got into that and what exactly it means and advice for you know even breaking into that sure yeah so angel investing really just means an individual investor so you don't have a fund you don't invest through a trust it's just a person sort of giving you a check Um, It really is no different except for corporate structure and what the oversight is. So a fund has an investment committee, um, you know, and sort of regulations as to how they can use their money. Angel investors, obviously being an individual, you can spend it however you want, you know, (laughs) however, whenever and whatever you want. Um, I started about, about eight years ago actually during business school, just seeing a lot of opportunities with classmates and elsewhere. Um, Oh, sorry, actually, it started before that. I forgot. I guess that counts. Um, After the first year, yeah, so it is 10 years. After the first year at Telanima, um, 
they started to form a restaurant group, which became Epicurean Management. And they were about to open L'Artuzzi and they were fundraising for it. And I said to the owner, August, who is now a very dear friend and mentor, I said, you know, I want in. I love Delanima. You know, L'Artuzzi is going to be twice the size. It's going to be awesome. And I called my dad and I said, you know, can you loan me the money for this investment? And he was like, yeah, you're joking me. No, <laughs> like you're in culinary school and about to go to law school. Like, no, you're crazy. And turned out he was wrong. It was a great investment. All their investors did very well. Um, so the next time around, a couple of years later, when they opened Anfora, which is their wine bar, um, I was able to, at that point, save enough on my own um, after working a little bit and ended up, that was my first investment was in Anfora. And then following that, um, started investing in a few friends from business school and then sort of took off from there. Um, you know, my biggest advice, well, there's two things. One, I like doing it because I like helping other entrepreneurs. And I think that, you know, I do have a very varied background and a different skill set than a lot. Um, and if I can be helpful and contribute capital, um, all the better. I definitely focus on strategic investments. I don't want to be a silent, passive check. Mm. I only like to invest in things where I can really be, you know, on the ground floor, early seed stage and helpful and where my background really is useful to them. Um, so even things that I'm interested in that I think are going to be successful, if it's an industry or a product or a company that's sort of out of my wheelhouse, I more often will just connect them to someone that's more useful to them. I just don't want to take room in a capital stack to not be able to really contribute anything outside of that. Yeah. Um, so then, uh, yeah, so I started doing that. And it's funny, once you start investing, word of mouth is pretty powerful. And I think if you start telling friends and family and you share that you're interested in it, you sort of get very surprised as to where opportunities come from. So uh, my, I started um, then investing a little bit in hospitality technology right around the time uh, myself and three partners founded Tech Table. And the first of that was Bento Box, which is a restaurant website company that is amazing, that did our Westbourne website. You know, Crystal, the founder, is incredible. And, you know, I was one of her first checks. And we met when I was at Union Square Hospitality Group. She was in Techstars at the time. And I just knew right away. And I said, I'm in, like, tell me what you need. I'm ready. And, uh, and then I got involved with Techstars really through that investment. So that led to a lot of other investments, being a mentor in residence at Techstars. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think my biggest advice is, you know, first, don't invest the house. I mean, they are risky. And, you know, I think the rule of thumb is you should don't keep it. Don't you say? Don't bet the house, oh, you know, yeah, okay. invest only what, you know, you can afford. They mm -hmm. are risky. And even those that do well, you know, you are tying up your capital for quite some time. So, you know, less than 10% of your income is what you should be doing and capping it at Two, I mean, the first investments, I would say invest with who, you know, I think that, um, you know, my first investment being in Anfora, I knew the team very intimately because I had worked with them. I knew August as a friend and I just felt, you know, that he would be a responsible steward of capital. It's the best way to start and it's the way you can sort of peek behind the curtain. If you're investing with a friend, they're going to share more about what they're doing and how they're thinking yeah. about the business and it's a better way to learn how to invest. And 
Third, you know, co-invest with people that you are, you know, interested in who have experience you can learn from. It's so, it's so great to, when I heard that episode with Dana and I heard about this, I really had no experience. I haven't been to business, business school. I didn't really know anything about investing. It was so inspiring for me to hear a woman who I can relate to and I like and I follow and understanding. I mean, obviously you have a law background and a business background, but I was like, oh, maybe I can come to investments that I want to start or I want people to help and be involved as much as you want to be. And um, anyway, I don't know. I'm not really articulating what I'm saying here well, but just the fact that you were able to you're able to help people, but you're able to also, you know, use the, use your experience that you have and invest in, and yeah, I don't know. I just, I just thought it was really cool, I guess. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a big sort of misnomer and fear around investing, you know, to be fair, I'm one of the only women my own age that I know that does. And yeah. I've joined, you know, as a result, a few investing clubs with, you know, amazing women twice my age, but you know, you seek out that community and I've yeah. learned so much from them. And again, both from a deal flow, but also from a, um, you know, strategic and tactical sense of how to think about investments and, you know, where trends are moving and, you know, what are new technologies emerging? So, you know, one thing kind of leads to another, um, I think you just have to be open about it. And if you're interested in investing, you know, raise that flag. I think things come out of the woodwork when you really set that intention and let people know that you're into it. Um, You know, like I said, meeting Joanne, and then I joined through a friend, Samantha Katz. She has a club called Invest In and Vibe. Um, It's all female entrepreneurs and investors, and it's pretty incredible. Now we're 75 people. It started two and a half years ago. And, you know, just because she knew, you know, I'd mentioned in a coffee date that I was an angel investor, you know, and opened up this whole world of 75 women that I had never met before. I love that. And I think your intuition can then help with this. And I know you're super intuitive and your intuition leads you and I'm sure it helps with, with investing. Do you have um, any examples of maybe when you didn't listen to your intuition and you wish that you would, or you've given us a couple that of, you know, when you have, or maybe this is a better question, how and when do you feel most clear and connected to your intuition? Ooh. Uh, I will say I don't think there's any time that I haven't listened to my gut, uh, for better or worse. I just can't turn it off, so I've never been able to ignore it and not choose that path for whatever reason is, you know, every time I jumped into something that my gut was pointing at, I just couldn't ignore it. So again, I almost felt compelled to each choice in a way. Um, I am much more gut than head in that way, so I just, I can't think of a time that I wasn't led by that, but... um, I think that we all have that gut. I think we all have that instinct. And I think we all have that deep down when you know something's right, when you know it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just not worrying about the consequences and sort of being able, sort of like I said, going to law school. If you could go to law school without worrying about what the job was or what it was going to lead to, it would open you up to much less anxiety, much more openness, and 
just enjoying the learning process, which will actually lead to better grades, more job opportunities, and the road that you want. So I think sometimes it's really just being able, I think the times to listen to it are the times when you do need that direction or you're in the middle of a choice, whether it's, you know, one or two choices or more, and being able just to sit with yourself and say, okay, you know, that pit in your stomach, that, you know, pressure in your heart that we all feel, knowing that that is probably more right than the pro and con list that you come up with or the rationalization that you come up with and being bold enough to say, okay, it doesn't matter what happens after this because I know in my heart this is the right choice and wherever it leads, it will lead to something else. So I don't know. I think my, I know I talk about my mom a lot, but I think my mom always instilled in us, like there's no mistakes because there's always another choice. And you just have to know in the moment that in that moment you made the choice that you felt you know deep 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 down was right it doesn't have to lead to the right consequences it just has to be the right and authentic decision and then whatever the consequences you can make another decision that leads to a different set but you can't look at anything based on effect you have to base it on sort of the original intention i think oh, that's so well said um, okay, well, I have so many more things I want to ask you, and I just had an anxiety attack when I looked at the time because it's gone by so fast. <laughs> um, and I'm so sorry I've kept it you so long. By. No, but it's just so fun. I want to just ask you the rest as like quick fire questions. Sure. So just say like the first Ooh. thing that that comes to mind. We always wrap with <laughs> with these. Sure. Some of them are shorter. And um, okay, so let's start with this. I heard on Dana's podcast you we have something. Um, super not in common, which is our love language. My top one is words of affirmation. Ooh. And I think that was the one that you forgot. That was like your bottom one. <laughs> yes. um, but yeah, that that's very important to me. And um, can you talk about love languages and how you got into them and how they're impactful both for business and personal relationships? Yeah, I I think they're hugely important in personal because... I think what people don't realize is it's not about the ranking. It's not about the preferences. It's really about awareness. So you and your best friend or you and a partner or you and a loved one, even a parent, being able to sit down, take the test together and have a conversation Mm -hmm. is the importance to be able to know. And then the awareness leading to action, which is you are supposed to give the way the other person wants to receive, not give the way you want to get. And it's really just a perspective shift on frankly, how human connection should happen. The point of being empathetic and giving back to someone is to give it in a way that they want to receive it, not through your own lens. And that's real empathy. That's real generosity. That's real care is to forget mine and give it for you um, and vice versa. So, and I think in business, I always find the love languages very aligned to how people like to receive feedback, both positive and constructive. Mm -hmm. You know, a compliment verbally versus a token can mean something very different to someone or (laughs) (laughs) totally or you know i am doing an errand for someone at work you know to one person that act of service might mean so much and to someone else it really doesn't register so thinking about each person in your working life as okay how can i give them feedback maybe they want their review written maybe they want it verbal maybe they they need their review you know super private or they need it in a restaurant like everyone has very different perspectives on that and i think again it's not about the gifts versus words of affirmation or quality time Mm -hmm. it's really about 
what do they need and what's going to settle best for them so that you know the message and the love and the care or you know the constructive criticism can come in a way that's going to be positive yeah you distill that book in such a concise <laughs> way I, I I'm very into it <laughs> I hadn't read it in a long time and then I heard you explain it just now and on Dana's podcast and I was like oh that's it that, that's like all people need to know you've distilled that so well so well, I think so much can be lost in translation um you have a very close friend we got obsessed with the love languages because her husband loves quality time so like his favorite thing is you creating a scavenger hunt and like having him run around the city all day or you know going on a boat ride and like she wants a piece of lingerie like she wants something tangible not for the flashiness or the superficiality it's for the token and that it's something physical that every time she wears it she thinks of her spouse and it took them years and years and years to sit down and be like i get it you want the cruise i don't and i'm happy to give you the cruise i want the gift like can we just agree it's almost like that fable where the husband sells you know his record player to buy oh, right. her you know and it's yeah. sort of like you got to be able to do it for the other person the way they want it yeah yeah what about um so you talked about in romantic relationships and i heard on the podcast with dana that you met your husband when you were 19 how did you guys meet and what is your um greatest lesson on romantic relationships <laughs> greatest <laughs> lesson in general yeah That's a big one um, we met when we were 19 in college at a club. Um, we knew each other for a while, but it was sophomore year at a club called Emerald City, which no longer exists in Philadelphia, um, really on the dance floor. <laughs> um, You've yeah. been dancing ever since. Dancing, <laughs> truly, that was it. Um, Did you date that entire time? Until that then? entire time. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So the greatest lesson, yeah, what, if you had to say one, other than love languages. Greatest lesson, I think, is really trying to preserve the innocence in every relationship. I think, you know, we all get jaded by time and things that didn't go our way or, you know, things we wish we had done differently. But I think really trying to preserve in your relationship a sense of innocence and a sense of purity, you know, we all have those moments when we're mad and we snap back, but what if you didn't snap back? And what if you held your tongue that time when, you know, you knew you were mad and you didn't need to muddy the waters and taking that extra minute to not muddy the waters and keep it really pure, um, I think is important. And part of that is going back to romantic gestures, you know, that made you fall in love. All those things that we fall in love with are the same. You know, we always want those, it's human nature. Um, and I think really focusing on how do you go back to the basics of what made you fall in love with that person? What were the things that you did? You know, both activities and gestures and time. Um, I think just remembering that we always want that purity and that innocence of falling in love with someone and how do you keep that going, you know, after many years. Yeah. Well said. Like everything back you to said. basics. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I know self-care is really important to you and you are a multi-hyphenate doing lots of different things. You own a restaurant, <laughs> you're bopping around the city, trying a bunch of new things, but how do you handle stress? I like, I wrote this book about journaling. How do you process things? Do you ever journal or write about your feelings or your therapy? Do you meditate? Like what are you, the things that you do to feel okay as a person in the world? I only laugh because so much, so much of, you know, 
launching a business or launching a brand requires obviously writing and things like that. And I actually really don't like to really? write. <laughs> like our PR team always laughs. They're like, can you fill this out? I'm like, oh, I will. But I really and I bet law school too is a ton of writing. Really hard for me. Really hard for me. It does not come naturally. And I really have to focus on sitting down and doing it. It's not some, it is not meditative. It is not enjoying, <laughs> enjoyable. It's really almost the opposite. So I laugh when people, a lot of people have suggested journaling and I'm just like, not Oh my either. God, I'd rather <laughs> jump out of the window. Um, I mean, a few things for me, I definitely get a lot of release and a lot of enjoyment in being with friends and being with loved ones. Um, Truly, I think they're the best sounding board. I think they're the best release. And, you know, most of my closest friends are my family, my cousin sitting right here. And, you know, my immediate family who I talk to five times a day. And, you know, my two closest friends from growing up live in the neighborhood. And, you know, just Mm -hmm. people who really know you, know you so well and you can't hide from. And, you know, you can be your... (laughs) best and worst self with any time. Mm-hmm. Um, getting to have them as a sounding board. I also you know, I have two dogs who I'm obsessed with. So walking around the city, so cool. spending time with them. You know, I talked about innocence. It's funny because every time you walk around the city and then you look at a dog, you're like, that's what I want my day to be like. Like everything is exciting yes. and fun and yeah. wonderful. And just they live with this whole sense of discovery that, you know, every time I look at them, like, yeah, that's what I want today. Um, and third it's funny, I again do get a lot of meditative, um, I think I get a lot of meditative release and relaxation from exploring. I really do love to go to a new city and do something that's different, a place I've never been, and sort of get out of myself and focus on that sense of discovery or understanding a new culture. Um, there is something that's very releasing for me and very clarifying, just getting out of your daily routine, getting out of all the things you do day to day that you have to do yeah. and doing something that you want to or can't anticipate. There's something about that sort of clean slate. Like I'm very big on exploring American cities and places I haven't been. I went to Marfa right before we opened. I went okay. to Marfa with eight women who I'd never met. We weren't allowed to know who was on the trip. A friend, mutual oh friend organized God. it. We met That's at the so airport. Cool. It was like an eight-way blind date and then drove four hours from El Paso to Marfa. That's and, so cool. You know, I really attribute that trip with a lot of um, clarifying and mellowing effects. You know, just looking at art all day and being in this like bizarre town that I always wanted to go to and no idea what to expect and just letting myself sort of go along the ride, um, I think for me is really the most escape that I can get, yeah. sort of taking my hands off the wheel. I'm not in charge of anything. I have no idea what's going to happen. And it's something totally different. I think for me is really, I get very stir crazy. Like I need to do something different and explore something outside of New York, outside of LA, outside of cities that I'm used to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that sounds so fun and exciting. I, I heard you speak, um, you said something on Dana's podcast about, I, I always talk about family a bit and you've, you've mentioned it so many times in this podcast <laughs> and you said something that really landed Told with you me. I'm the homebody. <laughs> no, homebody explorer, I guess. <laughs> and I didn't write it down and I, and I don't actually even remember, but something like love your parents, but don't idolize them. And, or that was like the sentiment I got from it. Um, 
Can you talk about that a bit and, and what you meant by that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I know Dana, <laughs> Dana loves exploring my family dynamics big time. Um, I don't know when, why, or how it happened, but I do think that I never, I can't remember a time where I thought my parents were perfect. And I really didn't realize until I was in college that people really did think their parents were perfect. And it was this really sort of destructive, confusing, and difficult period of seeing their parents as human. And I didn't realize that was unusual really until that point. I I think I always saw my parents for who they were, the good, bad, the ugly. They're human beings. You know, you don't need a license in education or instruction to have children. And you know, as I said, my mom was not raised with her mom. Her mom died when she was very young and she was always very, I think maybe that's it. She was just always very open. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I didn't have a mom. Like, Mm -hmm. help me help you. Let's work together. Let's figure this out. So in that way, I think I sort of felt in a weird way, kind of like the third parent, a little bit of my own parent in that way. And yet I have very nurturing, loving, very generous and open-hearted parents but i think they were just so open about their own shortcomings and where they were great at things and where they weren't and things that they needed help on um it wasn't like we're the parents what we say goes and we know best and you have to listen to us they were kind of like okay you know even when i get in trouble you know they'd sit down and be like okay what do you think is the appropriate punishment and i'm like this is crazy You know, but like how many people tell their kids that? Not many. Or like, why do you think this shouldn't be the rule? Like you may, I mean, no wonder I went to law school and am a lawyer. You know, it was all about proving your case. And like the rules did change. You know, if we wanted to do something or we didn't see something as working right, you know, my parents said, great, like make the case. Let's hear it and let's talk about it. Um, I think there's a danger in people who think that their parents are perfect. I think you put, you should always... I mean, there's an inherent trust in your parents, but again, they're human beings. Like they don't know. And they are also doing the best that they can and the best sort of like the love languages. They're doing it from their perspective. Their perspective comes from a whole different set of experiences than your own. You know, I was raised with a mom. I was raised with a great mom. You know, she didn't have a path lit for her by her mom. And so her approach, you know, comes from a very different experience than mine will. So... You know, and even, look, when I went, I think this is probably what we talked about a little bit with Dana was, you know, when I wanted to go to culinary school, my dad thought I was crazy. And he told me, this is the worst decision. I don't know what you're thinking. Everyone's going to banking. Like you went to Wharton. What is this? You know, I worked my whole life. So my only daughter of all of my kids Mm -hmm. did not work a blue collar job. Like what is, like, what is this? You know, I had to sit him down. I'm like, I totally get it. I understand your perspective. You came from nothing. You worked four jobs when you married mom. You put her through college. Like, I get it. This is very different than like what you were striving for. But look at me. I'm happy. I am enjoying this. And that's what you want for your kids. You want them to be happy. You don't want them to just do what you think is best. So like, I hear you. I appreciate it. And now I'm going to reject your advice. (laughs) And I now need you to jump in the boat and paddle with me. And I'm lucky. I had parents who always jump in the boat, even when they don't agree, even when they think it's potentially a mistake, they're still in the boat paddling. And that's the importance. Again, you can't hold, I think you can't hold your parents responsible if they're critical of you or they don't agree, they don't see eye to eye. 
you just have to get to a point of mutual respect and mutual support, even if it's not what you would do. Yeah, yeah, that's so well said. This one actually will be quicker. They're so, like my heroes and my anti-heroes, both at the same time. I, I love it. Someone said to me once that your parents want them want you to first be safe before they want you to be happy. And I think <laughs> that's interesting. I think it I think it's kind of true that initially like their gut reaction is for you to do the safe thing because they just want you to be okay, but really that deep down they want us to be happy. I think it's to me I see it even bigger than that. And again, going back to the love languages, it's they want you to be safe and happy through their perspective. Right, so yeah. and not because they don't love you and don't think your perspective is right they just don't have another frame of reference so you sometimes also have to take it upon yourself to lead them into this other perspective this other world this whole other realm you know like i said when i was looking to get into food people aren't getting into food as a profession it's totally different now and you know my dad laughs he's like now it's crazy this is such a big industry like who would have thought you know he's a former attorney now works in real estate he's a very set perspective and I think that you know they want you to be safe and happy through their own perspective and that doesn't mean you can't be safe and happy in a different perspective you just have to light that way it's just out of their realm of what they know yeah they only coach you on what they know and they're doing the best they can but it's still only what they know and it's cool because what we know can help grow them and can help take them to totally and that's I think why parent and child relationships as adults can be really interesting and I think they can be hard because I think not all parents agree with that yeah I think not all parents do want it to become balanced I think not all parents do want to be challenged yeah the great ones do and the great ones realize that the learning does go both ways and that's what leads to very healthy relationships as adults yeah I remember I think when I was 18 years old I sat my parents down like okay going to college from here on out we're going to be friends, not parent and child. And I said, because from this point forward, it's now a choice whether I spend time with you. I don't live in your house. I don't have to be driven to school. I now decide, am I coming home from college or am I not? And you are now the people that participate into whether that choice is to spend time with you. So your role has really shifted. And I want to be very clear. We have to now make an agreement that we want to be together and we need to behave in a way where we want to be together because I don't have to anymore. My mom was like, what did you just say? (laughs) And I said, just think about it. And, you know, years later, they both said, you know, you're very right. And we didn't really think about it that way. But that's the adult shift that I think a lot of parents struggle with. And a lot of kids don't know how to communicate. Yeah, yeah. That that was great. (laughs) I wish I would have done that. It would have been, like, less rocky. (laughs) Um, What about, okay, this is Told you I was outspoken. (laughs) Great. What's the best thing you've eaten in the last week? Ooh. Definitely. um, Well, two things I'll say. One is the tostada from June's All Day is spectacular. And I love June very much. Um, And then I did go out to sushi uh, to celebrate South by Southwest. My parents happened to be here for the day. And I think the best sushi in New York is still sushi Asuda. Cool. That uni from Hokkaido is like everything. We talk a lot about on this podcast body image and women's bodies and the way we look in the world and it's something that we're taught to constantly think about and just do constantly think about and working in the food industry and loving food as much as you do. 
how have you handled your relationship with your body? Has it evolved? What has helped? And where where are you with body image and kind of the world we live in with that? Um, I I think I feel very lucky. I think I came from a household that, again, you know, you don't know when you're in it that you're experiencing it, yeah. but I did have a very positive reinforcing environment um i think part of that is also growing up with brothers like they don't talk about how you look they care about other things and you know i think my mom has always had a very positive relationship with food and very balanced like my parents work out together and they like to be out and about my dad likes to run and you know we're not the greatest athletes on the block as i said but i think being somewhat active um sort of part of the lifestyle uh I wish I was addicted to working out. I'm not. It. I do it because I have to, and I found some workouts. Like I love dancing, which I used to dance when I was younger. So like 305, um, and a friend Amanda Klute, she has an awesome class. Um, I try and do that where I like it, and I go with a friend. And again, I like to be social, so at least then it makes it sort of a going out. Um, (laughs) In, you know, I think it's again. I was raised with a lot of balance. You know, not not the naturally string bean type of family and body shape, um, but definitely naturally on the more athletic build of things. Um, I'm very lucky. I do have a very good metabolism, and I think that's just one of those things that you're either, it's the luck of the draw. Um, I think I just grew up in a household where food was very positive, and again, growing up where we indulge, but we also had a relatively healthy household. Mm -hmm. You know, my mom was shopping at places like what became Whole Foods way before it was really cool and trendy. And part of that is it's so accessible in Los Angeles. Um, So I guess more about, I think about balance. And I also think accepting what you've got. We've all got, you know, body parts we wish we could change and body parts that we love. And every person has a mix. So, you know, I'm curvy. I have a big butt that's this my is an thing. audio presentation and but she's beautiful in person. <laughs> <laughs> you know and that's I just feel like I've always tried to be more focused on the best that I can be like I am not gonna look like Carly Kloss I'm not tall like that and you know I think just being happy with the pros that you have and being balanced in that and I don't know for me too I wouldn't give up anything I ate I just like I just wouldn't, I couldn't. So whatever I can do, I can do. And I always say when I work out, like anything's better than zero. Like I'm not winning some athletic award. I've had two knee surgeries. Like I am not going to be a workout champion of the world. So I just have to be, yeah, (laughs) work with what you got, I guess. And, and try and come to a place where you really can feel happy about the things that you do have. You know, the grass is always greener, but it's always can also be worse on the other side. And you just have to be happy in the middle where you got. Yes. Preach all of that. (laughs) Um, What are you most excited about in your life right now? Most excited? I mean, got a brand new business. This is the fun part. I think that, you know, you work on something, you have it in your head, you have it on paper, and, you know, you tell people that you're working on this crazy thing and to see it be real and tangible. And as someone I coined the term this week at South by Southwest when I was speaking, I feel like I'm the analog millennial. Like I'm very millennial in a lot of ways, but I'm still 
Like I love to touch. I mean, we have a lot of collateral in the restaurant and our design team always laughs. They're like, you love this stuff that is so antiquated, you know, like a map and business cards. And I just love tangible. So to have it be there and to see people there and to meet people through being in the restaurant is just been totally surreal. And I think I'm most excited about absorbing more of that reality. I think it still feels very not real. Um, and, and really excited about what that brings and what the road ahead will be of which I can't see yet. So, yeah, that's so cool. Okay. What are the first three things you do when you wake up in the morning and the last three things you do before you go to sleep? (laughs) Very first thing I do is have a very intense makeout with my two dogs. (laughs) It is definitely gross if you don't like animals and you know, they both sleep in. I am not a morning person, which is hysterical that I opened Westbourne that opens at 8 a.m. and our whole team thinks it's hysterical because they all know I'm not a morning person. Um, Even when I was in high school, I just am not, I am very nocturnal. So they sit and kind of wait until I'm ready to get up and I just feel like they've been sitting and their emotions and their excitement have been packing in for hours. Um, That, uh, I am a big sort of layer in bed for a hot minute. I like to open the shades and like sort of absorb the day you know, take in, is it sunny out? Hopefully, is it warm today? Um, I think that like one moment of peace, I'm not a like get up right away Mm -hmm. and run out. I don't snooze. I hate snoozing, but I do sit and sort of like let the day sort of set for a minute. Um, And then very closely brushing my teeth and coffee is probably (laughs) as close as I can get my toothbrush and get... um, coffee you know my mom's dad she always used to tell us stories of how much he loved coffee I feel like that was such a ritual for her and in my family that smell there's Mm. something very nostalgic it's not just about the caffeine for me there is that morning ritual around just taking a moment for yourself and enjoying something that you like that's aromatic and again makes you slow down for those couple minutes that you're enjoying it so I think a lot of self-indulgence in the morning (laughs) I love all of that. What about in the evening? How do you wind down and, and turn off at the end of the day? What are the last three things? I am that? a big TV watcher, which our whole team, again, just laugh. They're like, where do you find time? You have seen everything. You've like binge watched every show. Like, what is wrong with you? And that's also why I like to travel, because plane times are a great time for trashy mm-hmm. TV or like movies. Um, big TV watcher. For me, it's funny. It's almost my meditation. It has been since I was younger. We were a Nielsen family. I watched so much television that we got asked to rate them. Oh, wow. And, like, when I watch, it's not pretty. Like, mouth open, tongue out. (laughs) Like, I am totally zoned out. I cannot hear a thing you say. Like, doesn't matter if someone's right next to me. Like, I will not hear anything. I am totally mindless. And I imagine that's what people experience when they meditate. And I am just so... Present but not it's weird like present but not like I'm into the show but I'm really not it's really just my mind shutting off and the time where it's not racing and it's just like my whole body goes down it's really funny and it's cute my niece who's seven she lives in London she's my total twin literally does the exact same thing and it is eerie and like you know we're not around each other a lot and when I watch her watch TV I'm like oh my god now I know what I look like (laughs) it's very out of body um so definitely television um Kind of definitely television, um, sometimes bath. My problem with baths is I 
get very hot. <laughs> so I do like a bath, but it has to be somewhat short. I think there's something really nice about just sitting there and it also normally gets disrupted because the dogs don't understand like why <laughs> I'm in a pool that they can't be part of. So <laughs> there's, it only lasts so long, but I do enjoy that as a wind down. Um, yeah. And I mean, a lot of times I'll call a friend, I'll FaceTime, I'll FaceTime friends on the West coast and just have, you know, that catch up time. I think yeah. that's really, um, you know, it's a good time to catch them because they're either before dinner or right after. And I tend to right before I go to bed, have a nice FaceTime session with a friend from the West coast or family. Mm. Big on FaceTime. I hate the phone, but I love FaceTime. Really? Oh, cool. I, I don't know. I like the, I like the phone better than FaceTime. Cause I feel like I constantly have to be I, I'm a big, like, walk and talk. Like, I like mm-hmm. to go on a walk and talk. But and that's why I only like FaceTime. Because you have to be present. You and, have to be yeah. focused. That's true. You can't be multitasking. It's really true. Okay, I'm going to FaceTime someone tonight. I do. <laughs> I really... My cousin Rana, my friend Scarlett, we are very big on FaceTime for that reason. Like, even if it's shorter of a talk, mm-hmm. I feel like really... And you can that's read true. someone better, you yeah, know? And there's really not the, like, talk. what did you say? Oh, I couldn't hear you. Oh, there was a fire engine. Yeah. It's... a even a shorter time talking, I feel like is much higher quality. That, that's like, you t- gave me a lot of good insights in this episode, but that might be <laughs> the best one. Um, okay, we only have one more time for one more question um, before the, the like final thing. So um, <laughs> uh-huh. I'll have, I wanna ask you them both, but you, I'll have you choose. Deserted island or dinner party? You choose between those two and then I'll ask you what it is. Ooh, deserted, no, dinner party. Okay. Um, this one's maybe a little bit harder, so you're having it, but it's good for you. Um, and then we'll do the, the we'll do the d- island one another time because that one's good too. Um, you're having a dinner party, and you can invite five people. Who do you invite? What do you make slash cook slash pick oh up? Gosh. And what do you hope they turn and ask you? And what do you not want to come up that you don't want to talk about anymore? Oh my gosh, that is so many questions in one. I'm gonna do one at a time. So guess. Um, I really would have loved to meet my mom's mom, who I was named after, who she tells me I'm very similar to. I, she weirdly comes into my dreams, which is bizarre because I've never met her. Um, she would definitely be the first. Is her name Ruth or Camilla? Her name is Ruth. That's my grandma's name too. Ah. So her name is Ruth. Cohen was her maiden name, and she loved camellias. They grew them in my mom's garden at her home growing up. Um, and like everyone in our family, every woman in our family is named with an R somewhere for Ruth. Yeah. She's very ever-present. So it was mine. Like, my middle name is Rose, and she... Oh. Anyway, same thing. <laughs> um, so definitely Ruth. I am obsessed with Phil Knight, the creator of Nike. We give every new hire shoe quote. dog. I am obsessed with that book. I think yeah. it's spectacular. And again, speaks to, you know, not only the road less traveled, but the roads that you can't see, and having faith that something's going to happen down the line that you can't even imagine today and just letting that roll. Um, Mm. I'm a big Nancy Silverton fan. I've only met her very briefly once, but I would love to have her at a dinner party. I think she's such a special female chef. I think, um, you know, she's been so herself in how she wants to cook, how she wants to participate in her business, who she is, and, um, you know, has had a lot of bumps in the road and still has maintained, I think, such a high integrity, successful, 
very rare woman, especially for that generation, and yet is very beloved and considered a very good person, which I think is, um, you know, sort of rare air in our culinary world. Um, Oh my gosh, this is so hard. Do they have to be alive? Mm. I guess I pick someone dead. Um, this is so hard. I know it's hard to be put on the spot. This is something that like it's like five. Really That's a lot of people to think about. Um, you could do less, or just the first ones that come to your mind today. Oh, I would really like to have. Maybe I'll round out the last two. Um, the uh, maybe two. Uh, one would definitely be probably Georgia O'Keeffe. I mean, I love her as an artist, and we definitely need an artist at the table. And then probably the creators of um, IDEO. I'm a huge. They spoke at Tech Table, not the creators, but the Tech Table food innovation team. Again, another book, Creative Confidence, like changed my whole thinking about things. And I think, especially in our generation, design thinking is. I think going to be at the epicenter of leadership and development and how industries are being rethought. Um, I just think they, I'm such a fan from afar, never met them, but that book really was an aha moment of thinking differently. And I feel like they would do a really cool game at dinner and something that would mm-hmm. like blow all our minds. <laughs> um, if you haven't read that book, I really, yeah. really, it's basically how to integrate design thinking into any business, whether it's you know perceived as creative or not. And also talks about how, again, categorization, we're very much divided when we're younger as if you're creative or not. Mm. So it's like, if you're into the arts, yeah. you're creative. If you're into science, you're not. But really, we all are creative and we're actually gifted with that as human beings from birth. And yet it's sort of weeded out, unfortunately, at a very young age. And so it sort of talks about how to bring it back, how to build that confidence, how to build that muscle again. So definitely that's five. What would I cook i mean i love a big spread that's just my thing um you're good with a platter man (laughs) (laughs) my i love seafood i think like cracked crab and getting really messy and down and dirty with some old bays like my favorite it definitely involves some sort of pie um Mm. i'm a big pie lover which is why we serve 420 blackbirds pies at the restaurant um and well, it probably would be high and low. I feel like the canapes and like starters would be something kind of swanky and fancy and then, you know, getting down and dirty with some crab. Um, anything I'd want to talk about. I mean, I think hearing people you admire, what inspires them and sort of how they think about both personal and professional goals and challenges are always really interesting. Like where someone turns to for problem solving, where they turn to for inspiration and you know it's interesting I think the topic of mentorship is something that um I'm hearing a lot at dinner tables and really the truth that a lot of my friends and people I admire um who weren't blessed enough to have that mentor Mm -hmm. in their lives and sort of forge their own path I think because that was a void um you know curious cross-generationally and cross gender and industry and this sort of compilation of people sort of where they where they find themselves and how they navigate that would be interesting um I don't know I'm never nothing's ever off topic I don't know I come from a family where you're not allowed to say pass or I don't want to answer that so I don't know as uh friends of mine have said you have very low boundaries (laughs) 
Or my Good. friend said, low, there's an outer and inner wall to every person, like low outer wall or low inner wall. Um, mm. I don't know, from a very open, uh, talkative family. So I don't know that anything would be off limits. That's Probably the best should. kind of dinner. Party, <laughs> Probably not. should, but no. definitely isn't. Just couldn't be recorded. Would never be on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> That's that was <laughs> no limits, but I have to be in private. Yeah. <laughs> that was such a good answer because the Desert Island question is like all about recommending books and TV shows and, and stuff, which, oh. um, which I really <laughs> want to ask you. But we'll I watch it. a ton of TV, but I also read a lot, which is somewhat in opposite, but I do read a lot. But it's good because you got to kind of recommend two books. But like only books, no digital. Won't. Oh, I will yeah. never I own a Kindle. I love that. I'll never read on an iPad. You really are an analog I can't. millennial, which <laughs> I am too, so I love. We should we should trademark that instantly, and we should make sure it's Heard it here first, one. TM. Yeah, exclusive. Um, okay, there's so much I could ask you, and thank you so much for this was staying so fun. here. This was so much Thanks fun. for coming over. Sorry, where is it? Oh my gosh, no, it's amazing, <laughs> as I love it. Um, the last question I always ask people, as you know, the name of the podcast is let it out. So is there anything that you never get to talk about that you wish I would have asked that you want to know still that you're pondering or thinking about anything you want to let out? Uh, I, well, I don't know that I'm letting it out, but, um, you know, I think the, I think the things I wish people talked about more, you touched on it a little bit really is women in business, women as leaders, women as mentors, women as investors. I think that, you know, there's a lot of lifestyle stuff out there and there's not a lot of business resources and I think sort of brass tacks. And I wish there was much more discussion around that because I think women are craving those resources and a lot of women are doing it right. And a lot of women want to share that knowledge. Um, And, you know, I think money and capitalism and all of those things aren't as talked about as freely amongst women as I wish it was. Um, and I hope it will be. I think the tide is certainly changing. Um, but you know, when I met a, I I just wish that that would be a little bit more commonplace and more talked about. Um, cause I think together we can do a lot and one of the big things. So in our pop-up with, um, tunes all day, you know, my, my big platform, I think, for 2018 and maybe beyond, um, certainly amidst the current environment and climate that we find ourselves, um, you know, I think the more that women can set that intention of supporting other women, investing in other women, purchasing from female-owned companies, representing female-owned companies, every time you make a choice, you have a choice to make an impact and that's your responsibility to either take or not take. And I think it is really important to make that intention real. And, you know, if you're hosting an event, host it at a female owned business. Mm -hmm. If you're doing a giveaway for, you know, a company, think about doing it with a woman owned product. When you're, you know, thinking about having someone on your podcast or a sponsor, or you're writing an article, think about writing about a woman. I just think, the more that that is really an intention amongst women, for women, by women, Mm -hmm. I think this year would be a tremendously different year. Agree completely. And I love that and everything that you shared. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thanks so Um, much. And this is sort of weird, but the last thing that we do on the podcast, because it's called Let It Out, (laughs) 
uh-huh. is and, and everyone can participate in this. Um, just sigh. So we would like take a sigh. Okay. Are okay, you ready? One, two, three. You're, give me your best sigh ever. <sighs> okay. We did it. Thank oh, you so much. Good. All right. That was my episode with Camilla. Thank you so much for listening. I absolutely love her. And if you're in New York City, you must go to Westbourne immediately. Like, maybe go right now. It's so good. I'm probably going to go right now. As soon as we were done recording this, I walked from her house around the corner to her restaurant and got takeout because I was so excited about it. And I got the macro bowl that we talked about in this episode with the jalapeno tahini, and it's everything she made it seem and more it's delicious highly recommend okay couple things before we go if you want to support this podcast share it with a friend leave a review on itunes five stars would be great and subscribe that helps the algorithm that helps more people find the show you can also join the secret listener facebook group to connect with other people listening asking questions and LaunchPod, check it out. If you want to start a podcast, you heard all about it in the beginning, so I won't say too much more, but that early bird pricing, make sure you get that. And the code for $100 off, that's a lot of dollars off. It's let it out. It's just, you know, the name of this podcast. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode with the founder of Pineapple Street Media, Jenna Weiss Berman. I'm so excited for you to hear that episode. It's really great. I was pretty starstruck interviewing her because I think she's pretty amazing. So that's coming up next week. And the emoji for this episode is, hmm, it's the palm tree because Camilla is from California and yeah, it just, it seems right. So tweet at me and at Camilla the palm tree actually comment it on our instagrams because she has a great instagram that i think you should definitely follow i follow it and it's basically my favorite person that i follow i just like everything about her aesthetic follow westbourne as well talk about a good logo man it's great branding and design and everything about it. It's just great. All right. I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Sorry for the rambly outro this week and intro. I didn't really think about what I was going to say before. And I just sat down and recorded this, which probably is pretty, you know, unprofessional and, uh, not what someone who's trying to, you know, teach other people about podcasting should do, but that's the whole point of this. I think it should be fun. I think that if anyone wants to do it, they should. The barrier to entry is pretty low. You can even ramble on your podcast intros and outros, but I'm going to stop now. All right. Have a great week. Bye. This week's episode is supported by something called Fit Fab Fun. It's a seasonal subscription box with full-size beauty, fitness, fashion, and lifestyle products. It retails for $49.99, but has a value for over $200. I don't even know how they do that, but that's amazing. And if you use the coupon code Let It Out, that's Let It Out, you can get $10 off your first box, which you'll find at www.fitfabfun.com. I think it's a really interesting concept. It's really cool. This Fit Fab Fun box 
feels like Christmas four times a year when it comes in the mail. And the products include everything from makeup to candles, accessories, self-care products like a massage roller, travel products, beauty finds. It's really great and you can customize the products, add on what you want each season. It's different and it's a surprise. And the thing that I really love is the membership also includes access to FitFabFun TV, which has a variety of workouts and meditations that you can do anywhere. And I love that because I love to do workout videos at home. I think it's so much fun and I really like FitFabFun and I think you guys will too. Just check it out. Again, you can get $10 off your first box by using the code LETITOUT at checkout. That's let it out. And the items include everything from Tarte Makeup, which is a natural makeup line I like, Juice Beauty, which you know I also really love. There's so many great things in there. It's really fun and I think you guys will really like it. Thanks, FitFabFun. The music you're hearing behind me now and all other original music in this episode is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. The album art is by artist Zoe Harmon, and this podcast is produced and edited by Amanda Scharf and hosted by me, Katie Dilbout. Check out our website for show notes to everything mentioned.